0: If you have a Bible and you want to open it up, we're in Isaiah, chapter 40. We're just doing the first two verses. We'll hit the next couple uh, next week. There is a method to my madness, and it's not my madness, it's that of another. So, it'll all make sense in a little bit. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand a double for all her sins. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for the Spirit of Christ who was at work in the prophets to predict the sufferings and subsequent glories of Jesus. We thank you that these prophecies were fulfilled and that you have sent apostles, evangelists, pastors to tell us. We thank you that through this word preached, Uh, to us, that you give us new life by joining us to Jesus in faith. If we have tasted your goodness in the word, uh, help us to have a longing for more, even this morning. Help us to understand what it means to grow up into salvation as we listen to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting when you uh, think about the course of a man's life in ministry, uh, the different events that take place. Uh, John Newton is, as you know, uh, my dead mentor in many ways. Uh, I I read a lot of John Newton uh, from a variety of contexts. And it's amazing to me how many different things took place during his lifetime, uh, and particularly during the course of his ministry. Uh, One of the Um, things that we possibly don't think about as much, is it was during his ministry that Handel wrote The Messiah. And it was incredibly popular at the time. And, uh, I mean, it it made Handel in many ways. He's known primarily for that piece of music, though he wrote many others, though some of them are also well-known, like water music. Um, but Newton was troubled. Uh, troubled enough that he preached 50 sermons on Handel's Messiah. What troubled him uh, was that people would be so enraptured by the music uh, that they would miss the meaning of the words. And so uh, those 50 sermons were the different texts that Handel used in the course of uh, that piece of music. And he expounded their meanings for the people. Now, I sort of understand this. I mean, I don't completely agree with Newton on this. uh, But it it struck me the other day as I was uh, driving in the car with the boys and the stations that I usually put on were all at commercial break, and so I put on Air One, and they played the new Kanye. Now, I'm not a Kanye fan. I I don't know if I'd ever heard a song of his before. Uh, I don't know. It didn't move me. I know it moves other people, Um, so I'm not really complaining about Kanye, so please don't. But at the end of this song, he kept repeating the phrase, Jesus is king. Jesus is King, and the instrumentation was um, keyboards that didn't make my heart sing. It was, a sen- in a sense, it was as if the music was working against the profound theological truth that Jesus is King, in my mind, went to the Hallelujah Chorus as a perfect example of, of the fact that music is supposed to match, I believe, uh, the, the, what the truth is. And as, as Handel has these people singing, and he shall reign forever and ever, you have the crescendo of the music in the choir, and it just, you can't help but be moved even if you don't believe in what you're singing. That was Newton's concern, that people would simply be moved by the music and not also by the message. The first text uh, that Handel uses uh, in anticipation of the incarnation and which Newton preached upon was this one we have here in Isaiah 40. Verses one and two, and so that's where we start. And we're going to start really at the beginning, or the most important thing, with the question of what does this teach about God? What do these two verses convey to us about God? But before I do that, a little bit of context leading up to this fortieth chapter of Isaiah we see that Isaiah has been speaking of exile. He's been addressing the sin of God's people and the consequences that are going to be experienced by God's people. And here's a shift, the beginning of a shift, in that Isaiah... okay. Remember that passage I alluded to in my prayer from 1 Peter chapter 1. The Spirit of Christ working in the spirit of the prophets, or working within the prophets, so that Isaiah is speaking about something here, not for himself, but for future generations. Something that Isaiah himself probably doesn't understand, but which he longed to know, just like the angels longed to know. He's speaking about a future to him prophet, He's speaking about something that will initially be fulfilled in the return from exile with the Cyrus edict, but because there's a greater fulfillment that awaits is ultimately only fulfilled in Jesus and his advent. But let's get back to what Isaiah says comfort, comfort my people. Repeating, this is, this is how the, the Hebrew language does emphasis, repetition. Okay, comfort, comfort, emphasis. In other words, God really wants the people to whom this prophet is supposed to speak to be comforted. Consoled. This provision of comfort or solace for people who are under affliction, who are experiencing sorrow. It's a, it's a coming alongside, not telling them that their, their tears are useless, uh, but giving them comfort in the midst of their tears. Not offering them false hopes and false promises, uh, but bringing presence and truth to them. God was concerned that His people would be comforted and He has sent a prophet to speak comfort to them. And that says much to me about the heart of God towards His people who struggle. We'll flesh this out a little more. Part of what it means is that he calls this prophet to speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, think about that for a moment. Contrast that with most of what has been going on in Isaiah's ministry. Warning them of the punishment that is coming to them due to their sin, and now God is speaking tenderly to them. God wants this future prophet to speak to his people in a very different way than Isaiah has been speaking to his people. Tenderly, or more literally, to the heart. Using an idiom that they had. He's intended to speak to the inner person of these Israelites, these people from Judah. And so, as an aside, I I want to remind you uh, that helpful ministry ultimately addresses the condition of the heart in an appropriate manner. And I always keep going back to 1 Thessalonians, if I could actually say it, 5.16. And I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. And so what what Paul gets there is, I think, what is modeled for him in the Old Testament. The idle person is to be spoken to in a very different way than the faint-hearted person. You're addressing the heart, the, the realness of the situation. They might look alike on the surface. They might both be idle, so to speak. But one is idle because of rebellion, and the other is discouraged. is worn down. And so that person needs encouragement, whereas the, the stubborn, rebellious person needs to be admonished. Some might look or appear to be idle because in fact they're weak and they need help. They need someone to come alongside and address them. And so ministry gets beneath the surface and looks to the heart of the person. Why is what's going on going on and speaking to the heart of the person as opposed to just the circumstances that are present to the eye? And so, he consoles them, this prophet. He he consoles them in part with the truth that they are still my people. I would think an exile would make me think I am not part of God's people anymore. And yet, God is speaking to them saying, you are still my people. I am still your God. The covenant is still in effect. You still belong to me. These are similar to the words that children often need to hear after they've been disciplined by their parents. You're still my child. I love you. Don't mistake the Discipline that you experienced as a sign of hatred, but really see it as a sign of love. That I'm concerned for who you are. I'm concerned for what you do. But notice that he's particular and that he's comforting only his people. They weren't the only ones to be exiled by the Babylonians or the Assyrians, and yet this comfort, this consolation is meant to come to his people. They are to be consoled in part by knowing that he is a covenant keeping God, that he is one who has kept his covenant and is continuing to keep his covenant. We see in Genesis 17, his covenant with Abraham, he talks about how he establishes this covenant between you and your me, meaning God, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, and here it is, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so uh, sometimes we misunderstand what God is saying in Genesis 17, that, that we somehow try to make it as though it's not about salvation. It's, it's not about spiritual things, but there's nothing more spiritual than being God's people. There's nothing more salvific than being God's people, for him to be their God. This is the great promise that is given to, to Abraham. It's not simply that you're going to have land. It's not simply that you're going to have heirs. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And we see this repeated in Jeremiah 31, and the great promise of the new covenant that was to come. And and this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Referring to the days of exile. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people fundamental unity between the covenant with Abraham and the covenant that God promised to make through Jeremiah. We see the same thing in Ezekiel 36. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. These people who had experienced this hardship were tempted to think that God was no longer their God and He comes to them through this prophet and says, you're still mine. You still belong to me. I still love you. This is an outworking of what Moses heard upon the mountain when God passed by him that Yahweh was merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Precisely because of that, God is faithful to console his people, to comfort his people when they need it. Paul, centuries later, would speak. In 2 Corinthians 1, of God as the God of all comfort, who comforts us so that we can begin to comfort others. And he has primarily comforted us. My tongue got twisted. In Jesus. He came, he came to us as the prophet, as the priest, as the king, to provide comfort for His people, Jesus did. Need comfort? I encourage you to seek it in Christ, believing that God intends to comfort His people because His Word consistently testifies To that's who he is. And so, an answer to that question, what does this teach us about God? It's that Jesus came to comfort God's people. And this leads inevitably to the next question, what required God to comfort his people? Were they alarmed about the existential crisis of the climate? Were they worried about a recession? Was it the death of a loved one? I don't mean to minimize any of these things or that people experience or need comfort in any of these things, but I want to get to the heart of this issue. This prophet was to declare that her warfare has ended. He speaks to Jerusalem as a personification of the people of God. Now, You'll notice a footnote if you have your Bibles where uh, for warfare. There's a, another Hebrew word with the same consonants. Hardship. I go with hardship. Part of the comfort was to tell her that her hardship has ended. The exile has come to an end. Now, Isaiah had prophesied the the exile of Israel by Assyria and he also prophesied the exile of Judah by Babylon because they had abandoned the covenant. Why did they go into exile? Because of her iniquity and her sins. Uh, These two words are complementary. They're meant to uh, expand upon one another. Iniquity includes perversity or inner corruption, as well as the guilt that comes with sin. In other words, this inner corruption will produce corrupt actions, corrupt attitudes, corrupt words, corrupt thoughts. Sin really points to the idea of transgression, the idea of breaking a law. In a sense, uh, the act of rebellion, uh, which is rooted in unbelief. For instance, 1 John 3, 4 mentions, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Living as if there is no law. What I want us to understand, what I want us to get deep into our hearts is that we are not simply theoretical sinners. I'm going to hit this a lot. Um, I have my own reasons. but I see this as a problem amongst Christians. Emphasized by the, the quotes and the reflections from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that, that there are people who will pay intellectual assent to the fact that they are sinners. But when it comes time to actually admit they have sinned, who, me? They're theoretical sinners. They're not actual sinners. We're all actual sinners. Each and every one of us in this room. It's not just we have the potential to sin, but we do, in fact, sin in thought, word, And deed daily, as we see summarized in the Westminster Shore Catechism. We do it. There's nothing theoretical about our sinfulness. And we see it every day in how husbands treat wives and wives treat husbands. How parents treat, uh, treat children and children treat parents. How you see it every day in the workplace and how people interact with each other and you see it on the news every day there's none of us that is only theoretically a sinner we are also actually sinners now we read numbers 15 earlier which differentiates between the unintentional and the intentional sin or what they call the high handed sin and they're treated differently Uh, The unintentional sin is still sin, Uh, but provision was made for that sin. There were offerings that were made. There was forgiveness that could be found for these sins, Uh, but the high-handed sin, uh, no provision was to be made. They were to be cut off from God's people. They were to be cast out from God's people. They were treated differently. Unintentional sins uh, means that you don't necessarily realize uh, that you were sinning at the time that you sinned. For instance, one day I was driving to meet another pastor. This is when I was living in Florida, and I'm cruising down the road, minding my own business, and I missed a sign. There's two signs. One was the county line and the other one was the sign right at the county line that said, Reduced Speed Ahead. <laughs> was I breaking the speed limit when the cop pulled me over? Yeah. Was I doing it on purpose? Well, not quite that much. <laughs> Did I deserve the ticket I got? Yeah. Did I mean to get a ticket? No. it was unintentional but the fact that it's unintentional did not in itself remove the guilt of my actions I had to go to driver school that sort of removed the guilt of my actions (laughs) intentional sin is when you know it is wrong but you do it anyway You don't care that it's wrong. That's the idea of the high-handed sin. It's sort of like, talk to the hand. okay? I heard an interview with Andrea Burke recently, and she's a woman who for a while was uh, in the Christian music industry, and um, she was working on an album with a producer, and I think one of the things that makes you a really good producer is probably your ability to connect with other people. And so he really connected with Andrea, but he ended up connecting with her in an inappropriate way. Okay? And uh, his marriage was not doing so great, and so now all of a sudden the two of them are playing kissy face. And people, person after person, her family, her church, even when she moved away... (laughs) and was going to another church, her family members wrote to that church and said, that man that you think is her boyfriend is married to someone else. She received warning after warning, and yet she persisted in her relationship, her adulterous relationship with this man. That was intentional sin, high-handed sin. And that, is the kind of sin that Israel and Judah practiced. They knew that they were worshipping false gods. They knew that worshipping these false gods was prohibited by God and therefore was sinful, and yet they did it anyway. They were guilty of apostasy, of spiritual adultery. And their their iniquity and their sin brought on the curses of the covenant, which we see in Deuteronomy 28, as including the fact that they will be defeated and removed from the land because they've corrupted it. 64 in particular. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Thankfully, there is word later in Deuteronomy that God will bring His people back from that exile. He will turn their hearts back toward Him. But we want to stop and and see that God hates sin. He's serious about sin, it's hard for us to understand because we largely have a culture that doesn't care about sin as God defines it. It cares about some other stuff. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's not. But sin is, because it's lawlessness, it is contrary to the character of God. Because the law of God reflects His character. It's rooted in who He is. Which is why Jesus can say that all of the law and the prophets hang upon those two commandments. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because they reflect the fact that God is love. And therefore, because we're made in the image of God, their sin is also contrary to our nature. And so if, if we stop and we, we wonder why God must speak comfort emphatically to His people, it is because His people are sin-burdened. And so we see that Jesus comforts us because we're sin-burdened. But, but this raises another question for me. How can God, who is just, comfort sinners? Do you understand the tension that has emerged here? Particularly as we think about high-handed sin. Remember, they were to be cut off from their people. They were not to just make sacrifices like everyone else. How is it that the holy and righteous God can comfort Sin-burdened people. The prophet would comfort them or console them because, it says, her iniquity is pardoned. Sin does incur a debt or a penalty. For instance... Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. What what sin earns is death. Paul also warned the Galatians, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So God not only hates sin, but he is just and righteous in the punishment of sin. And we do have to reckon with that. Her her hardship was to be understood as paying off her debt so that she, Jerusalem, was received favorably. God continues. She has received from the Lord's hand double. In other words, reckoning with this idea that Her suffering, the reason for this consolation is not accidental. It's not coincidental. It's been brought about by the Lord. It is His hand that has brought this suffering upon them. Now there's a part here that for us who read English and are modern people can be a stumbling stone because she received Double. It sounds unjust to us, doesn't it? If, if I were to if I were to tell you, I'll go pick on Dan because because he's a minister; he can deal with it. I said Dan, "I know you took a hundred bucks from me, but I need two hundred back." Okay. And so there's a, there's a sense in which it's restitution, but I think there's a I believe that there is a figure of speech behind this uh, that David Jackman talks about, and meaning similar to what we find in a book, uh, that when it's doubled over, the pages match. It's not like, you know, sticking out on one side. The idea that the punishment perfectly matches the debt that was incurred by the sin. Paid in full would be another way of kind of putting that. God has given them exactly what they deserved, but now was the time for comfort. So, God's provisional pardon that we find in this text uh, was initially rooted in the exile because they've been removed from the land, that they polluted, these things. But ultimately, the fulfillment of this passage comes and can only come uh, from a Messiah who comes to pay for our sins. the the God that we see revealed to Moses as one who forgives sins, not because you've paid for them, but because he has. Uh, that this Jesus is, is able to do what no one else is able to do, he's able to make perfect payment. And Peter speaks of that in the third chapter of his first letter. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus suffered in the flesh to pay the penalty for our sin. And so... Her iniquity ultimately would be pardoned because Jesus had paid the bill. Jesus, he had no sin of his own to pay for, and he offers himself as our substitute. Now, this is an imperfect picture of that, uh, but for those of you who are into dystopian novels and movies, uh, yeah, Katniss in the the, the first part of the Hunger Games. Um, Now, the Hunger Games were initially established, um, well, because of a war that broke out, and this was their penalty, that every cycle uh, they were were to offer up one person from their nation to go to participate in the Hunger Games as ransom. And basically, um, 12 men enter, 12 persons enter, one comes out. Okay? And Katniss sees that her younger sister is chosen in a lottery to represent, to bear the sins of her people. And Katniss says, I volunteer to take her place. Okay? Jesus has volunteered. To take our place. Jesus has volunteered to be the ransom for sinners. And that's the wonder of the gospel. That there's a debt to be paid to God, but God paid the debt himself. Let's go back for a moment to uh, Andrea. She, in a sense, received double for her sins because the man she cheated with cheated on her. And she had to, then she went back and found that it took years for her to apologize to all the people uh, whose lives had been affected by her choices that were sinful. One of the things that was astounding to me was uh, her brother who was in ministry. Uh, It was one of the last people that she had talked with. And she had talked to her mother one day when she was in Uganda, particularly in Kampala, on a mission trip, because she had been restored to the church uh, in Texas and everything. And And her mom said, your brother is in Kampala. Think about that for a second. You're on the other side of the world, in a completely different hemisphere and your brother with whom you need to be made right is there. And God has orchestrated that so that you can be made right. God connects us to Jesus so that we're made right with him. So what of your sin? We need to remember what I said a few minutes ago. You're an actual sinner. And because you're an actual sinner, not just a theoretical sinner, someone has to pay for your sins. Who? Faith receives Jesus as the Messiah, as our own substitute who dies in our place. Faith also rests from our attempts to pay our debt through our good works or through our big donations or uh, any other way, hurting ourselves. But faith rests on Christ saying, His suffering is sufficient for my sin. And so not only does Jesus comfort us because we're sin-burdened, but Jesus comforts sinners by bearing their sin. So if we were to bring these three threads together, we see that God promised a Messiah Messiah, to comfort His sin-burdened people. John Newton wanted his congregation to grapple with the truth in this text and the other texts that we're going to look at over the course of Advent. If we grapple with this text, we see Jesus seeks to comfort his sin-burdened people. He reminds them uh, that he is still for them as their God. And instead of waiting for them to come to Him, He came to them to be the full payment for all of their sins. So Jesus is our consolation precisely because He bears our sin, the weight of which is too terrible for us to measure, but which we get a glimpse of when we look at the cruel cross. And so I invite you to gaze upon Him crucified, to receive comfort for your soul when you sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank You because not all of my sin is unintentional that all of us can point to times when we have sinned with high hand. And yet, instead of casting us out forever, we see that you bring us back in through Jesus. Fill our hearts with joy. Fill our hearts with wonder. Fill our hearts with relief. Console us with Jesus. Because, Father, there are people here who are wrestling with guilt, who are wrestling with shame, who are wrestling with fear and don't know whether or not you love them and help them to see with the eyes of their heart Jesus, the one who came to save sinners of which we are the worst, that they might have hope, that they might find relief, that they might find one who is for them and not against them. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.